We're on a final lap here in our series on the kingdom of God in the gospel of Matthew. And uh, the, we've learned so much about the kingdom. It's been a wonderful series. And we have a couple more messages to go. But today we're looking at a key passage introduced to us by the missionaries here today. Uh, one of the most key passages in the whole New Testament. And certainly, as we think about ourselves as a local church, that's what Bethel Church is, as we think about ourselves as a local church, perhaps the most important words that Jesus gives regarding the purpose of a church, why we exist, why we are here. For reasons similar to uh, June 6, 1944, when the Allies were about to kick off D-Day, the Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, gave a very famous speech that was communicated to all of the soldiers. I'm going to read a portion of it here for you today. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year, 1944. The tide has turned, the free men of the world marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your devotion to duty and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us all beseech blessing of, the all, of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. And with those words ringing in their ears, off they went to Normandy. And no matter who you are in terms of being a, a leader, a king, a general, the gipper, you know, there are these uh, defining moments where the, the leader pulls it all together, summarizes, this is what we're doing right here, and lays out the mission in its most core uh, concept. And it's no different in the kingdom of God. Uh, it's no different in the church. We need to know who we are. We need to know why we exist. Why is this church here and why are you a part of it? We need to understand that clearly. I had a woman in our church tell me recently, she said, you know, I hate these roundabouts they're putting up everywhere. She says, I get confused. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And she said, the other day I got on one and I, did, I got confused and I just kept going around and around and around and around. I wasn't sure where to turn. And there are so many churches, I think, and Christians, even a part of good churches, that, that they just keep going around and around and around and around. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know why they're there and what the purpose of the whole thing is. And that's what Jesus helps us with here at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, is he just lays out in a core statement, why are you here? What is this church about? What do I want you to be doing as I leave and until I return? These are the most important things. And so I'm calling it the King's Speech. The King's Speech. And it's the King's Speech with the King's Mission for the King's Church. And so we're in Matthew 28, if you didn't know already, we're in Matthew 28, very famous passage. We begin in verse 16, the last words recorded by the gospel, by the gospel writer Matthew, here's what he says. 
Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew picks up the, uh, the, the narrative, the storyline, in the post-resurrection story of Jesus. And just to tell the story in some, uh, a little more fullness, so Jesus is resurrected Sunday morning. We know some of the events about Mag- Mary Magdalene and Peter and John and, and all the rest. But Jesus appears to the disciples that very day in the upper room. Eight days later, he appears to them again, this time with doubting Thomas there, and he says, come touch my hands, cut touch my side. Well, remember, uh, he told them to go to Galilee. And so the story now goes north up into Galilee, in fact, to the Sea of Galilee. Seven of the disciples were fishing, and Jesus uh, has that moment, cast your nets on the right side of the boat and make some breakfast, and that whole Peter, feed my sheep, that all happened then. And sometime after that, in a, on a mountain in Galilee, maybe up to 500 people. We know at least these 11. Now, why does it say 11 disciples, by the way? Are you with the story? Because it's the 12 minus who? Judas, who obviously betrayed Jesus, committed suicide, was dead by this time. They go to this mountain, and they see Jesus from a distance. And immediately it says that they worshiped him. But an interesting little clause here, and I just want to highlight this because there's so many people that struggle with doubt. Notice what it says, but some doubted. Now that is either a confusing verse or a fabulously wonderful one, and I think it's the latter. Because here you have the disciples. They saw him die. Now they see him alive. They are standing before the glorified, resurrected body of Jesus, the person of Jesus who is eating and talking to them and making them breakfast. And yet, in spite of all of that, some of them doubted. What's going on there with that? I think what's going on is that they are so overwhelmed by the whole thing. They're so overwhelmed by knowing that he, that he died and now he's alive and what does all of this mean? It was like beyond their ability to comprehend it. And so they just stood there almost frozen with uncertainty. They doubted, what is this all about? So many Christians, I think, we think that if I'm a good Christian, I'll never doubt. And we, I have people that come and they want to talk to me because they're like, I, am I saved? Because I have doubts about this. And I want you to see right here, the disciples doubted. It did not mean that they were not followers of Jesus. It didn't mean that they weren't um, under the love of God in some ways. It just means that they were human. And if you have doubts about things and you're like, I just don't get it. I'm not sure I can understand it. Join the club. There are so many things about the Bible and about salvation and God and the glory of God and history and the will of God and all of that that are beyond like categories that we can really understand that we either come to the point where we worship God in spite of those things or we are frozen in doubt and we think I can't be saved because I have doubts. I want you to see they doubted. 
The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is unbelief. And there is room in Christianity for doubts and wonderings and things that we can't quite comprehend, that we can't put together, but we serve Jesus anyway, okay? Now, I mean that as an encouragement to you today, and I think God's going to use that word in our church. I hope that he does. Now, here we have the famous words of Jesus. And Jesus came to them and said, so he draws near now. He was from a distance. Now he comes near. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Key statement in the story, and certainly a key statement in the understanding the, the kingliness of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Now you look at that and you say, wait a second, I thought he always was the Son of God. I thought that he always had that authority. I thought that he calmed the seas and raised the dead and made the blind see because he had that authority. And indeed, he did have authority. So what's going on here? All authority has been given unto me. Well, I wonder if you remember when in the temptation, when Satan says to Jesus, if you bow to me, I'll give you what? All the kingdoms of the world. Now, was that an empty offer from Satan? Like, could Jesus say, hey, man, that's not yours to give, right? Like, we're all good at giving away other people's cars. Oh, you can have it. Wait, you don't own that, right? Was it, did Satan have authority over those kingdoms? He did. Satan rules in this world. He is the ruler of this age. He's the ruler of darkness. He's the ruler of this world. God has granted that authority to him. But now Jesus stands before his disciples and he says, all authority has been given unto me. What has happened? By virtue of his obedience to the will of God and his death on the cross, his conquering of death in the resurrection, God the Father now bestows to Jesus something that up to this point he did not have. He did not have authority in heaven and on earth. But the Father now grants that to Jesus and says somehow to Jesus, from now on, other than me, you have it all. That means that everywhere in this universe, Jesus is the ruler. He is in authority over all of it. Now, Satan still has a provisional authority that he does in this world and all of that, but reigning over the entire universe and the spiritual universe. It is earth and it is heaven. Christ reigns supreme. He is king of everything, everybody, everywhere. It is an all-encompassing authority now that he has. Now, we look in the world and we don't see people in submission to Jesus. We see people, you know, blaspheming him and living in, in immorality and disobedience and wickedness and all the rest. And we think, ah, it doesn't seem like Jesus is in control very much. But in the plan of God, Jesus reigns at the right hand of God the Father, even as the gospel goes forward in this world, and as the kingdom is, advances, if you want to say it that way, in the hearts of men and women as that gospel takes root in their heart and Jesus is enthroned in their heart. But in God's plan, there's always tares and wheat in the world. And in God's plan, Satan continues to rule. And in God's plan, men and women still rebel against God. But it will not always be that way. Jesus is in authority right now. And someday, all will bow before him. Here's how Philippians says it. 
Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Notice where. In Indiana, in the Chicagoland area, United States of America, no, it is everywhere that his authority is exerted, which, by the way, is everywhere. Not just the physical world, but the spiritual world as well. In heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christos Kyrios, Jesus Christ, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So to say it this way, someday ISIS will bow. Someday, Satan will bow. Someday, that profane guy at work will bow. Someday, that fellow student who uses Jesus' name will bow. Someday, every person who has ever lived and ever will live, and every demon and every angel and every creature other than God the Father will bow before Jesus and will acknowledge what is already true right now. Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay, Jesus Christ is Lord. And so Jesus begins now his commissioning of the disciples and through them us with the glory of his own being, with the glory that is his now. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. With what I'm about to say, I want you to realize it is grounded in the character of my power and my authority. Do it because of who I am. And now we get into the essence of what that doing is to be. And I want everybody here, I want you to pay attention because I want to hold up what we're supposed to be doing, and in, in, in then pulled up what we are doing. And I want each of you to, to see what we're supposed to be doing and then to personally look in the mirror and say, what am I doing? If this is what Jesus wants us to be doing, how are we doing with it? Well, here's the it, the essence of the mission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Very familiar words. Now, this is a verse where getting the grammar right makes all the difference in understanding what Jesus is actually saying. Uh, like English, what, what Greek does is it uses tenses of words to communicate importance, okay? And in this verse, there is one imperative verb, and then there are participles that surround it that describe the character and the nature of that imperative. So to help with this, and this will feel like your old English class, I'm identifying for you what the key verb is. The imperative in this verse is not going or baptizing, it is making disciples, okay? Make disciples. What Jesus wants to communicate is, from this point forward, I want you to focus on making disciples. And there are many things that go into that, and, but again, this is the summary speech. Make disciples. That's what I want you to give yourselves to. This is a command, okay? He is not suggesting this. He's not saying if you can get around to it. It is a command from the one in whom all authority lies, okay? 
It is the essence of why we exist as a church and why Jesus has left, here by, uh, left us here, by the way. Why not have instant rapture? You know, you come to faith, boop, up you go. Because there's work to be done around here. Did you know that? That the church is not just a place to sit and soak and sour. There is work that is to be done, and the king is commanding and calling all of his citizens to be a part of it. Make disciples. Well, here's how we say it here at Bethel Church. Our mission is to make fully devoted followers of Jesus whose lives are all about him. Bethel Church has a mission, which is to make fully devoted followers of Jesus. What does that look like? Their lives are all about him. Do you like that? I think it's a good summary. Now, if the mission is to make disciples, we better know what a disciple is, right? If your whole mission is to make a widget, you better know what the widget is. And I wonder how many of us here actually understand what a disciple is, right? This is the big thing. What is it and how do we make them? So let's talk about a a disciple. At the core of what a disciple is, is somebody who follows the teachings and the example of somebody else. The meaning is captured, I think, in the words uh, that Jesus says to Matthew when he calls Matthew as his own disciple. Do you remember what he does? He comes walking up to Matthew, the tax collector, at his desk. He says two words. What were the two words? Follow me. Follow me. What does it mean to be a disciple? Follow me. Follow Jesus. The mission is to make disciples. Making disciples includes both the beginning and the process, okay? It is the beginning of becoming a disciple. We call that conversion, right? Faith, belief, salvation. It's the beginning, but it is also the rest of it is part of it as well, okay? The maturing or what we would call progressive sanctification, the process of becoming a Jesus junior as we are made into the likeness of Christ. All of it is part of the mission, let me compare it to you this way. Let's say that our whole goal was to make brain surgeons. What is, what do we, why do we exist? We exist to make brain surgeons. You can say, well, then now, what, what, what's important in making brain surgeons? Well, it's both learning the beginning, right, in the immortal words of Michael Jackson, uh, ABC, it's easy as one, two, three, right? You gotta know the ABCs. If you're ever gonna become a brain surgeon, you better know your ABCs and your one, two, threes. That beginning is important, but so is all the rest of it. Because the goal is not simply to begin discipleship, the goal is to make disciples. And that making is the beginning, it is the process, it is the multiplying, and it is the maturing, or we might say it this way, it is the evangelism, and it is the edification. So make disciples. Class, what's the goal? Make disciples. That's why we exist here. Now, in the verse, though, what Jesus does is he gives the the goal, and then he frames that goal with, they're technically, they're participles, okay, and these are aspects of what this process is going to require. If the goal is to make disciples of all nations, 
How is that going to be accomplished and what should that look like? And you'll notice the three participles here, it involves going, baptizing, and teaching. Going, baptizing, and teaching. Let's talk about each of these. Going. The commission is a go mission. It involves going. And there is nuance in this word. And so you read the commentaries and there's debate about whether this Jesus is saying, everybody's got to leave and go. Or if he is saying, as you go or as you live your life, make disciples. And maybe you can go either way on that. But here's what I think. The mission is to make disciples of all nations. And whether that is exegetically required, it certainly is logically required. Imagine those disciples. They go, oh, okay, so as we go, as we fish in the Sea of Galilee, let's make disciples. And let's say that they never went anywhere. This world is a much different place. If nobody ever left Israel to tell anybody that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead, how is this going to be accomplished that all nations are evangelized, it requires some people to be goers. And maybe God might call you to be a goer. In my opinion, it's been too long since this church has raised somebody up from within it and sent them off. It's been too long. We've had some of that. It's been too long. I have to believe that there are within our church people that God has equipped and maybe prepared your heart to be a goer, to reach the nations. At the same time, not everybody can go. And for goers to go, it requires senders to send them. And so you are either a goer or you are a sender, but everybody is part of the mission. Everybody has a role in this thing. And what I want, my goal in this message today is for everybody to be on board with that mission and to understand that you have a key role to play in it and that Jesus has commanded it. Make disciples. So this is not just like the missionaries and the pastors. This is, if if you are a disciple of Jesus, this is what you are about. And really, this is, I think, a lifestyle. We are disciples ourselves who are on mission to multiply disciples, duplicate ourselves, by intentionally helping to make disciples. And so here is the clear command of Jesus, and I want to ask you, if Jesus showed up here right now and went down the row and said, okay, I want everybody here, I want to report, I want to report from everybody, what are you personally doing to fulfill the mission that I gave you? Go. Down. Okay, what are you doing? And and what are you doing? And what are you doing? I wonder, what would you say that you are currently, actively, intentionally doing to be a part of Jesus' mission to make disciples. I want you to think about that. Second participle, baptize. Baptize. Right in the king's speech is baptism. Now, it's not the central thing, but I do want you to note that in the final words that Jesus gives, he includes baptism. Not only is this a command to baptize, but it is also a command to be baptized. And if you're here today and you're like, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, have you been baptized? No! 
you got to know, in the first century church, you would have been a weirdo. Like, if, if in the first century church, if somebody said, hey, man, are you a Christian? Yeah, when'd you get baptized? Well, I haven't got around to it. They would be like, what are you talking about? Like, did you, Jesus told us to be baptized. Like, you're a follower of his and you're not obeying that? Like, what's up with that? It's right in the Great Commission, is baptism. I'm noting that to you, and I say that because we have some of that going on where it's like, Following Jesus, believing in him, yes, I gotta do that. Baptism is sort of this optional thing if I can get around to it. And I don't, I don't think Jesus includes the optional things in his final words, right? I don't think General Eisenhower is like, you know, go to Normandy, shoot if you want to. <laughs> there are certain things that are just part of what it means to do it. And to be a Christian is to believe in Jesus and to obey him and get baptized. And if you haven't been baptized, you need to get baptized. And there's the verse and many others that say followers of Jesus need to get baptized. And if you want to get baptized, you let us know and we'll take care of it. Okay? We'll take care of it. Baptism. And then we have teaching. Teaching. Can't spend a lot of time on this, but teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And I note that right there in the Great Commission is the role of teaching. You look at the ministry of Jesus. He did many things, but everywhere he went, he taught. And there is within Christianity this prioritizing of the teaching of the teachings of Jesus and in the, and the Bible and how God uses that, right, to grow his disciples. It is a priority. And every, every few years, somebody comes along and says that, oh, enough with teaching and down with doctrine and it doesn't matter and let's do shorter sermons. Let's just love people. That's all that we need to do. Let's just love people. But I want you to see that everywhere Jesus went, he loved people and he taught them. He taught, he taught, he taught, he taught, he taught. The early church was filled with teaching and filled with preaching. And God's people have always been learners. Learners. People of the word. Yearning to learn. More to say on that, but no time. Here's the, the final part of this is a powerful encouragement. Notice, and surely I am with you always to the end of the age. I want you to realize that the king doesn't simply promise power for the mission, which he does do. Okay, all authority in heaven and earth is given unto me, now go. He doesn't simply promise power he promises presence. I am with you. I am with you. His authority, he says, is over everybody, everywhere. It is, it is transgeographical. It is, it is transpherical. But notice here that his presence includes all those spheres, but then he adds, even to the end of the age. His presence with us is trans-time. Every second of every minute until the end of all ages, I want you to know I'm with you. 
I am with you. And what an encouragement that is for us, isn't it? That our king doesn't just sort of lead from a distance, say, all right, go get him, and I'm gonna hang out in heaven, and when you're done, I'm coming back. No, he says, as you go, everywhere you go, all the time you go, know that I am with you. His presence with us. And we know after Pentecost that that presence is via the Holy Spirit, which is also called the Spirit of Christ, that the Holy Spirit is the presence of Christ with us. And everywhere we go, all the time, he dwells within us, for goodness sakes. We have Jesus with us. And what an encouragement and a comfort that is. This is what David said as well. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, where's the comfort? You are with me. Every sphere, every age, everywhere, he is with us. And that's not just in the mission. That's in the ups and downs and the trials of life. And there's no doubt somebody here who needs to hear this word right now. Jesus is with you. He is with you right now. And to think about in this service right now, in this place right now, that Jesus is here. He's here. The, whole, the Holy Spirit is here. If we had eyes to see and understand the presence of the risen Savior is here with us and will always be with us no matter what happens, no matter how long, to the very end of the age. Do you believe that? And that's the king's speech, okay? That's the king's speech. All authority, do what you do, because I am who I am, has been given unto me. Go make disciples. The character of that making is involving going to the nations, teaching and baptizing, making followers of Christ. Now, what I want to do the rest of this message, I want to spend a little time talking about Jesus' mission to the church and Bethel Church. Okay? Jesus' mission to the church and Bethel Church. Because I think this passage, as I said at the beginning, provides an opportunity for us to hold up. This is what Jesus said we're supposed to be doing and prioritizing, and now this is what we're doing. And to ask the question, how are we doing? And individually for us to ask the question, how am I doing? In terms of prioritizing what Jesus said I should be about in my life. And I'm going to give you my pastoral perspective on the church. This is what I think, okay? This is just Steve DeWitt, okay? One dude, but I have a bird's eye view on the church. I think in some ways we're doing well. And I think in some ways we have a lot of room for improvement. Now let me unpack that a little bit for you. And that's a hard thing to say, by the way, because our church is so diverse. We have so many different people, you know, we have the campuses, we got all this stuff going on. It's hard to say we're all one way or the other because we're not all one way or the other. We've got, you know, a lot of wonderful on mission, serving Jesus type situations and people and families. And we've got a lot of stagnant, not doing anything from what I can tell people. Both of those together. So I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush here when I say uh, what I'm saying here. But I think that Jesus words here are a particular challenge to our church to multiply and to mature. Or to say it this way, and this is what I want you to, this is the thought I want you to have in your brain. Bethel Church, more and better disciples. Okay, more and better disciples. That's what we need. I think we are as a whole 
better at maturing disciples here than beginning people on the process or beginning people in, I'm saying it wrong, we're better at helping people that are already Christians become better ones than we are adding new Christians. That's my perspective, okay? We have a lot of people that come to our church. Well north of 5,000 people were here on Easter two weeks ago, okay? That's a lot of people. But I want you to know that Jesus doesn't say make a crowd, he says make disciples. And there is a big difference. Otherwise, Wrigley Field would be fulfilling the commission, the Great Commission, amazingly, because they gather this crowd all the time, right? If just gathering people was the goal, there are tricks and things you can do to get people to show up at something. But the goal is not that. The goal is for the church to be beginning to introduce people to Jesus, for them to receive him as Savior and begin the process of being a disciple. And then growing in their walk and in their faith. And I, what I'm saying is we're, pretty, we're better at the growing than we are at the beginning. Many people come to our church. They like the expositional feel. They like the doctrinal, sort of uh, creedal, gospel-centered feel. And you know what? Great. I don't want to change that. I love that myself. Great time to encourage your pastor with an amen there. Just saying, Okay. I don't want to change that, okay? And many people, and I hope you're one of them, have come to our church and their spiritual life has taken off, like they have grown and sometimes grown magnificently and we see that transformation and it's like a fantastic thing. Love that, want more of that. But as I said, we have plenty of stagnant Christians to be found around here. And I want you to feel uncomfortable I want you to feel like you're sort of an outlier, like you're not with the program. I, want you, I don't want you to feel comfortable being stagnant and coming to our church because that's not the goal. Jesus didn't say, go make stagnant, don't care if that much people. He said, make disciples, or as we're saying, fully devoted followers whose lives are all about him. That's the goal. And if that's the stream of where everything is going here, if you're not in the stream, I want you to feel like you're sort of not with it. Because you're not. And frankly, you're missing out. Who's hurt by that? You are. Get on board with the mission and grow and mature in your Christian life. And if you don't want to do that, then I would say, why don't you begin as a Christian in the first place? That was a little stronger than I planned on, but it's true, I think. So the goal of the mission, more and better disciples, I think we need to grow in the more side, the evangelism side, the caring about the people around us going to hell side. We have many people that come to our church from dead churches, or ancient churches. And I want you to know you're welcome here and I'm glad you're here. And if I was you, I would do the same thing. Glad about that. Where we need to grow is in the culture of mission in the day-to-day of life. Where the Great Commission isn't just sort of a when the church talks about it thing, it's like an everyday thing for us. Where in my heart and in my mind is the thought that I myself am a 
mission airy in my workplace and in my school and in my neighborhood, that I have a desire in my heart to see people that are around me become followers of Jesus, that I actually think it's so wonderful in my life that I want to share that good news with other people, to build a relationship. In fact, if I could ask this question, and I'm asking rhetorically, but if I said, right now, I want to do a poll, and I'm asking everybody here to participate, I said, I want everybody to stand, and if you have built a relationship in which you have shared Jesus with somebody in your life in the last two weeks, would you sit down? In the last two months, would you sit down? In the last six months, would you sit down? Here's my question. How far back would I have to go before you could say, yep, that's me? And if you're one of the people that's standing very long, could I say to you, you are not on board with Jesus' command. The command is to make disciples. And if we're not making disciples, you can say all that you want, but we are not in obedience to him. This is a command. It is an imperative. I read this this week. I liked it. Scripture anchors evangelism in our lived out new creation identity in Christ. It's a lifestyle. We are, as my friend Walter McRae has written, gospelizers, people who have been radicalized by the good news uh, from Jesus Christ. We have been changed by the hope-filled, faith-giving news of his divinity and humanity, his life and death, resurrection and ascension, and his return to reign and rule over and through all who authentically believe in him. We are gospelizers, he says. And if you're not going to the nations geographically, you are still called to be going. Going in terms of the spheres that you live in and I live in. We're still goers. In a sense, we're all goers. Seeking more disciples of Jesus by personally loving and leading the people in our life towards Jesus as God allows and to pray about that, and to be burdened by that. I mean, just, to, to just think, if, if for a moment we could understand what eternity is like for somebody that does not know Christ by faith. And to realize every person that you ever see is somebody that's going to spend eternity, and there's only two options. And Jesus says, go and share the good news that there is salvation in my name. Make followers of me. It's not like he's saying, go and tell people a burdensome story. Go and just, you know, depress people. No, go and save people. Save people. What glorious opportunity we have to see people saved from the wrath of God forever. And it's not just the church or the pastor's. It's the people. In other words, you. You, friend. Now, I'm going to do a little wondering here with you, okay? Just a little wondering. Again, this is Pastor Steve. This is not an elder edict or anything like that. I'm just doing a little wondering with you here. I want to think about our Mission Them initiative in light of Matthew 28. Do you remember the statement? Here it is. 
Bethel Church exists to multiply disciples through multiple sites and multiple partnerships. Now, in light of Matthew 28, does that echo, does that echo what we're supposed to be doing? I, I think so. I, you know, we wrote that some years ago. I'm glad that I still like it. I, I think there's an echo of the Great Commission within Mission Them. And I just want to wonder out loud with you here a little bit, might God be calling us to target people groups, ethne, nations, that aren't out there but actually live right here in this diverse community, northwest Indiana? For example, you could say, we want to reach China. The Chinese come here. We have initiatives in the Chinese community right now. We have baptized on this stage many Chinese students who have come here. And we've got Chinese uh, ministry that, that is ongoing. And I just kind of wonder, what might that look like in a more organized way as a direct result and application of the Great Commission? I'm wondering. I talked this week with a Latino pastor who said, you know what Northwest Indiana needs? Northwest Indiana needs a Hispanic, gospel-centered, reformed-leaning, big God, sovereignty of God type church. And I just kind of wonder if we were to say, well, Bethel Church, what would it look like for us to reach the ethne that are living in the neighborhoods around us, in a more organized way? And might Jesus applaud such efforts in light of what he told us to do? What does that look like? How does that funding happen? How do we do that? I don't know. I'm just kind of wondering with you. But here's what I, I look at that, I look at where we're at as a church, I look at the opportunity, and aren't there exciting possibilities for us as a church to just live out the Great Commission in ways that someday when we stand before the king and give an account, we might be happy that we did? This means amen, okay? <laughs> amen? We do what we do because he is who he is, knowing that as we do it, he is with us to the end of the age. That's the king's speech. That's the great commission. It is the mission of the church. More and better disciples. Let's do it for the king. Amen?